Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, cannabis growers and small business owners gathered at the state capitol last week to protest burdensome taxes and bureaucracy that they say is putting the legal marijuana market on the verge of collapse. It's been five years since California legalized marijuana under Proposition 64 to bring order to its illicit and quasi-legal market and ensure access to regulated products while also generating billions in tax revenue. But the illegal market is still thriving, with more than 75% of sales in the state coming from unlicensed sellers. We look at why after this news. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. The promise of Proposition 64, which legalized marijuana in California more than five years ago, was that it would create a robust legal market that could generate about a billion dollars of tax revenue a year for social service programs and environmental cleanup of illegal farms and for repairing black and brown communities disproportionately targeted by the war on drugs. Yet today, More than 75% of marijuana sold in the state still comes from illegal sellers, and unregulated cannabis products are everywhere. This hour, we look at why and what can be done about it. And joining us first is Nicole Elliott, director of the California Department of Cannabis Control and former senior advisor on cannabis to Governor Gavin Newsom. Nicole Elliott, thanks so much for being with us. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Where would you say we are in terms of the promise of legalization five years later? So I I would say that we are making progress, um, but those promises are have not been fully realized. And I think that's the nature of transitioning this really big market into a well-regulated space. It's been five years, though, and the vast majority of weed sold in the state still comes from the illegal market. Why is that? And doesn't that seem like really not making progress toward that promise? Sure. So, uh, you know, I would challenge the assumption that 75% of uh, purchases are being made in the illegal market. But with that said, um, where would you put it? I would say we, we have about one in every three Californians that don't have access Uh, to legal cannabis. Um, And so that's where the focus really needs to be. The focus needs to be on local jurisdictions, um, providing their consumers, their existing consumers with access to legal retail options. And so how would you make that change? What are some of the things that the state wants to do? So in the governor's budget, he did uh, speak to this in January when he talked about 
uh, wanting to encourage uh, local jurisdictions that haven't yet come on board, especially when it relates to retail, uh, to, to get off the sidelines and to, to start creating solutions by creating pathways. Um, the department, the creation of the department uh, was the first step in doing that in simplifying this overall process for them and helping locals understand how they can more easily do that. He alluded to a grant program to support those efforts as it relates to opening up retail and moving forward. Uh, so I think it's about creating strong partnerships with those local jurisdictions and really assisting them uh, in standing up programs. I think there's a slew of other things that can be done to make that process uh, more simple for the businesses, uh, more quick for local jurisdictions and for the state department um, in licensing. Um, but I would start there in creating those strong partnerships. Um, I think we're having just a little bit trouble with the clarity of your line. So we're going to see if we can have you call back on a slightly different one. But while we do that, let me remind listeners that we're talking with Nicole Elliott, director of the California Department of Cannabis Control and former senior advisor on cannabis to Governor Gavin Newsom. And you, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation. Curious what your thoughts are on where we are with regard to legalization five years later. Perhaps you are a cannabis farmer or dispensary operator. What's been your experience doing business or trying to do business in California since 2016? What policy changes would you like to see happen? If you're a consumer, do you know if the cannabis products that you buy come from the legal market? And and is that a concern for you one way or the other? You can call us at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. You can email us forum at kqed.org or get in touch on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram at KQED Forum. So Nicole Elliott, one of the things that happened was that uh, there was a a protest last week at the Capitol, and basically a lot of the folks who were there, including growers, advocates, business owners, especially small business owners, were asking the state to provide relief from high taxes. Is that on the table? Is that something you're thinking about? Absolutely. I think you heard the governor speak to that as well. Uh, any changes to the tax structure requires two-thirds uh, vote of the legislature. And so uh, he indicated a willingness to work with them. So I think that is a fantastic sign for those efforts. Um, Two thirds is a high vote threshold. So getting the legislature involved, helping them understand those issues uh, is very, very important. And I, I think what you saw in that, in that rally was an effort to do just that. Uh, but I will say we do see challenges for our licensees as it relates to the, the, the burdens of the current tax structure. Um, and so we, we are hopeful that we will see modifications this year uh, to ease those burdens on our licensees. And what about issues related to the speed with which the regulatory process is going through? Absolutely. Uh, you know, having, an, having a state framework that can be adjusted nimbly is very important uh, in this process. And uh, you saw the department make changes through emergency regulations, but we were constrained in some of the changes that we could make. Uh, we will be going through a regular rulemaking process to change some of the regulatory framework without sacrificing the overall objective like consumer safety, worker safety, licensee accountability. Um, but that process will take a little bit more time, um, but we are working on that in earnest. How much is enforcement 
a part of the plan as well to really try to enforce the laws against illegal businesses, illegal grows? It is a part of, of the overall process, but history has shown that enforcement uh, will not solve this issue alone. Um, it will not be the ultimate silver bullet in shutting down the illegal market. Local participation, sufficient access to legal retail, consumer awareness, and ultimately a federal market. Those are the things that will make uh, the difference. One of the things that gets pointed to a lot is how Proposition 64 was written in a way that allowed localities to basically ban marijuana businesses in their jurisdictions. That's a hard thing to change. I assume that would require an initiative. But is that something that you are talking about with the governor, about trying to, to get something like that before voters, working to try to prioritize doing that? We have focused our energy on working with the local jurisdictions, and we'll continue to focus our energy on working with those local jurisdictions to convince them that it's the right thing to do um, and that it is feasible to do. Uh, and this is conversations that are happening now it will be conversations happening in the future. LA County is a perfect example of this. They're taking up um, the consideration of creating pathways for, for legitimate uh, business opportunities, and we are engaging with them and supporting that process. I know you need to leave us, um, Nicole Elliott. And I'm wondering, one of the things that's also been asked is whether this will become more of a priority for the governor. I know that he's directed some 13 million to the state's new department and and but some are wondering if that's really very much and and have been concerned that he's been so quiet on the question of legalization and and the fact that it is at a point where people feel like it needs a pretty serious intervention. So this is, a, as it relates to the governor's involvement in this, the governor has been involved since day one. Uh, no prior governor had a cannabis advisor, um, and he did focus a significant amount of, of effort in creating this consolidated department in deeming this industry essential in focusing funds to support the transition of legacy to the regulated market and supporting equity in the state of California. So I would refute that assertion, and, and I would say that this governor is very focused on this industry. Well, Nicole Elliott, thanks so much for talking with us. Thank you. Nicole Elliott is director of the California Department of Cannabis Control and former senior advisor on cannabis to Governor Gavin Newsom. I want to invite Amanda Chicago-Lewis into the conversation, a journalist covering cannabis. A recent story for The Guardian is titled, California Legalized Weed Five Years Ago. Why is the illicit market still thriving? Amanda Chicago-Lewis, thanks for being with us. Great to be here. Would love to first start by getting your reaction to what Nicole Elliott was saying in terms of the state's plans for addressing the problems uh, in the industry in the state of California. I mean, listen, I appreciate the efforts that Nicole is trying to put in, um, but at the end of the day, she is uh, rather constrained in terms of what she is personally able to do or even what the governor is able to do. Um, but certainly appreciate the uh, political massaging of not necessarily disputing that the market is 75% illegal, but reframing it as a conversation about only one in three Californians having access to legal marijuana. Yes, but I, also when you say um, rather constrained, what do you think are the biggest constraints with regard to what the state can do about it at this point? Uh, I think the two biggest constraints would be uh, the overhang of history, the legacy of how cannabis has been handled in California for the last 25 years. Uh, and then the second one would be what you were identifying earlier, local control. The fact that 
individual cities and counties are able to uh, determine their own cannabis policies. Um, that's something that's part of Prop 64. Uh, you know, as Nicole was saying, the governor needs to get uh, two thirds of the legislature to um, be on board to any changes to the tax structure. Uh, but the, you know, what was written into Prop 64, uh, the people end up being more of a dictator than than the governor here because uh, what was written into the initiative is very difficult to change. So uh, if all the governor's office and the state can do is attempt to convince individual municipalities to either lower their taxes or allow cannabis retail in the first place or expand cannabis retail, um, ultimately they don't have a lot of control because you're leaving that in the hands of city councils and uh, county boards of supervisors and uh, what have you. Uh, and of course, when individual municipalities decide to quote unquote ban cannabis retail, that does not actually stop cannabis retail from existing. It merely moves it into the illicit market. Hmm. Well, let's get more into detail about that after the break. But before we do, just quickly, what percentage of the market, the marijuana market, would you say remains underground? Uh, certainly 80 to 90 percent. Um, wow. But as you can imagine, the illicit market is not easy to measure. We're talking with Amanda Chicago-Lewis, and we'll have more with Amanda right after the break. Plus, we'll hear from you, our listeners. 866-733-6786 is the number to join our conversation. 866-733-6786. Email us, forum at kqed.org, or get in touch on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram at KQED Forum. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're looking at five years after legalization in California and why there are so many headlines these days that are saying that the cannabis industry is still in disarray. And we're talking with Amanda Chicago-Lewis, journalist covering cannabis, and also you, our listeners. 866-733-6786 is the number to call to join the conversation. What are your questions or reactions about where California is five years after legalization? Perhaps you're a, a grower, a dispensary owner. What's been your experience doing business in California since the policy change? in 2016? Or if you're a consumer, how much of this is a concern for you with regard to the legality of your products or or whether or not they're coming from the legal market? And we were touching on 
the market, actually the black market, Amanda Chicago Lewis, just before the break. And we've got some um, callers calling in about their experience trying to run businesses, trying to grow weed. Let me go to Anthony, the Inland Empire, to start us off. Hi, Anthony. Join us. Hello. How are you? Great. Fantastic. Uh, I was a, I'm out of business now. I, I owned a medical delivery service and I used to grow it. I, I vertically integrated my business and I would grow it and then I would retail it running my delivery service. But because the tax structure was so much, I started, I started penciling things out and it just didn't make sense to continue operating. Mm. I also had a chance to open up uh, in LA and get an LA license. But in looking at the cost, the landlord that I was looking at wanted $20,000 a month for me to sign a five-year five lease with the first six months paid up front in cash. And, you know, uh, the cannabis business is still essentially a cash business. So you also have to learn ways to operate around that. And uh, it's very expensive to operate around, a, you know, a cash business and trying to, you know, make payroll and pay your people and keep them safe. It just didn't make any sense with, with all of the things that, 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 that the cannabis people who wrote the initiative agreed to in the tax structure. It just didn't, it didn't make sense. And it didn't kill the black market. That's thriving. I know of several growers growing up in, in Northern California that just never stopped. But what it did do, too, is it also drove down the price of a pound of cannabis. So the wholesale prices were driven down while the retail prices, uh, the retail cost of that product went up. And you, you can't really uh, pass that tax along to the customer because then the customer is going to find another place to find it. If it's too expensive for, to, for them to buy it legally, they'll buy it illegally. And well, that's, what I, that's what I experienced. I, Anthony, thanks for sharing your experience. And Amanda, wondering if you could speak to what Anthony is saying with regard to the fact that it has just been a difficult environment for people who are trying to do it legally. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think uh, Anthony hit on something that's really key that people misunderstand about the cannabis industry. Um, there's an illusion that selling or uh, manufacturing cannabis products uh, is incredibly lucrative, that legal weed is a really easy way to get rich. Um, and this is just totally false. Um, it's false in California. Uh, it's pretty much false across the board. Um, the majority of cannabis businesses are um, barely profitable, uh, in part because of competition with the illicit market, um, which has existed for a long time and is much more efficient than the legal market, uh, in part because of taxes uh, and fees, uh, and in part because um, federal taxes, uh, uh, because of a quirk in the tax code and because cannabis is uh, illicit on a federal level, businesses ended up end up paying about twice the effective tax rate uh, of a normal business because they're breaking federal law. So they might be paying as high as 70% uh, in taxes. Um, the other thing that Anthony said that I think is noteworthy uh, was his reference to a, a business he used to run in the quote unquote medical market. Um, so this is really, I think, 
bigger than many of the other issues that are happening right now. And, and part of why Nicole and the people who are in charge today don't have a lot of control over um, getting the illicit market uh, under control. Um, the quote unquote medical market, which opened in 1996 when California originally passed medical use uh, and existed pretty much until 2018 when the state began licensing uh, both medical and adult use cannabis businesses. So for over 20 years, um, we had a market where it was legal for individuals to possess cannabis if they had a doctor's recommendation, which was very easy to acquire. Um, but it was not actually legal to run any kind of cannabis business. Um, all of the medical dispensaries that you saw operating in the early 2000s and, uh, you know, as, as recently as 2017 were technically breaking the law, um, even in situations where individual municipalities were offering licenses, um, those municipalities didn't necessarily uh, jive with uh, what the state believed um, or what you know various uh, sheriff's departments believed. So uh, anyone who was running those businesses was um, you know, often not paying taxes, sometimes paying some local taxes, not really following um, regulations for the most part. Um, depending on where they were, uh, and, uh, you know, generally having a pretty low overhead um, because it was just sort of this laissez-faire Wild West market. So then basically it sounds like you're saying because this has been in place for so long, it's become really entrenched. And once legalization happened, it wasn't as if it, it couldn't just continue um, and that. Yeah, that's exactly it, what I'm saying. Yeah. And if someone, <laughs> yeah, if someone didn't get a license, it's not like they weren't going to be able to do what they were doing. They could just basically continue business as usual. It almost sounds like you're also saying that there, it really needed to be kind of an incentive model from the state to bring people in and what people are facing instead or have been facing instead if they want to go legal are really high taxes. <laughs> Yeah, that's absolutely true. Um, but I also think it might be a situation where the toothpaste was out of the tube and, you know, once the, the market became entrenched, um, it was just really hard to get those people to start um, following rules or paying taxes, especially when, well, maybe there's no license available in your municipality. So you're just going to keep running your illicit business. I think the other factor is the confusion um, on the part of the public, right? Like, I live in Los Angeles, um, and for most of the last decade, there's been about 2,000 cannabis dispensaries in Los Angeles. Um, up until 2018, all of those dispensaries were technically breaking the law, but most people had no idea. It was like these dispensaries have been around for a while. Um, you know, I see prepackaged products. You know, I know I voted for legal weed, so why would this be illicit? Um, and how could a storefront exist for so long and be breaking the law? Um, and so today, you know, now that we have like just over 200, maybe 230 legal dispensaries in Los Angeles, you know, there's still like another thousand estimated out there that are not legal, but like no one really understands that. Like yeah. it's not just when we talk about the illicit market, it's not just going to meet a guy on the corner. We're also talking about you order cannabis delivery online and you are not even aware as the consumer that actually your county bans legal sales and the person you're buying from is a quote unquote 
drug dealer, right? That like they didn't, you know, screen their products. You think you're just getting legal weed because the state has legal weed. So why would it not be legal if you're ordering it online? You're touching on all of these reasons, but do lay out, you know, make the case for for why we should have a robust legal market. Why should we have a robust legal market? Well, I mean, does anyone remember the vape crisis? I know we've encountered a much more serious public health situation uh, <laughs> since that occurred in the summer of 2019. Um, but, uh, you know, the chemicals that all of the things that combine to create uh, the cannabis concentrates that people like to vape, um, there's so many, you know, uh, somewhat risky from a public health and safety perspective processes that go into making those devices. Um, And when it happens in an illicit market, uh, the efficiencies that, uh, you know, illicit operators move towards in order to save money um, are usually not in the best health interests of the consumer, which is why we saw, um, you know, about, I think it was like 50 people died and thousands of people were hospitalized from lung injuries caused by illicit cannabis vape pens um, in the summer and latter half of 2019. Um, And though, you know, the communication around how that occurred and what was causing it was a little bit muddled um, in the public narrative, uh, the clear takeaway was, you know, if you don't have legal operators then you could be consuming anything. Imagine if you bought meat from an illicit operator. I mean, that would be gross. Yeah, exactly. If you don't have uh, illicit operators, if, if you don't have legal operators, then, then you don't have regulated uh, products as well. Amanda Chicago-Lewis, again, a journalist covering cannabis. I want to bring into the conversation now Amber Center, co-founder and executive director of Supernova Women, an organization empowering black and brown women in the cannabis industry, also founder and CEO of the cannabis company Maker House. Amber Center, thanks so much for being with us. Yeah, thank you for having me. I want to hear from you. I know that you were among the people at the Capitol last week asking for relief. Can you talk about why you were there? What are the things that you are facing as a business owner? Yeah, so uh, Supernova Women actually um, organized that action at the Capitol last week. And um, we're asking for tax relief. Um, Me as a small business owner, I'm a Black queer woman. Um, very hard to uh, survive in the legal cannabis market. You know, this is a very capital intensive market, uh, requires a lot of upfront front capital as well as capital to just stay afloat. And um, yeah, just very difficult times for uh, small black and brown businesses and really just small businesses in general, including small farmers. How have you been able to stay afloat? What have been the, the biggest things that have helped you? Um, <clears throat> really, uh, it, it's been a number of things, you know, I'm, I'm quite vocal. I'm really, um, um, seen as a, as a leader in cannabis. So I have a lot of connections. So I've been able to raise money. Um, I've been able to, um, uh, get some really great, uh, partners in, uh, retail partners that, that help me sell my product. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been uh, really just kind of able to, to leverage um, um, my business and and who I am in the in the industry to be able to to help me survive. So I'm definitely coming from a place of privilege where uh, uh, many of my counterparts aren't. 
Do you feel like your consumers um, are surprised when they see basically the final cost at the register? Or do you think that they get it and are willing to pay it because they're, it's important to them to buy from the legal market? Uh, I, I, they're shocked. You know, consumers are shocked. I mean, I, me, I'm a consumer. I'm, I'm shocked <laughs> when I go and buy, buy cannabis and see uh, what the final tally is after spending $100, you know, uh, on uh, two-eighths of cannabis and it comes out to uh, $140 at the register. Like, that's, that's jarring. That's alarming. And it's a problem. One of the things that you've said you'd like to see, of course, is lowering those taxes, especially for businesses um, that are trying to do it legal, and especially for businesses that have been disproportionately impacted by, or people who've been in communities that have been disproportionately impacted by the war on drugs. One of the other things that you've asked for is to make the regulatory process smoother. Can you just give us a sense of what your experience has been trying to go through the bureaucracy, say, to get a license or to get a location, things like that approved Absolutely. by the state. <clears throat> Absolutely. So um, most recently, um, I just won two dispensary licenses in San Francisco with my equity partner. And um, it took us three years to get through that process. We're two black women. And uh, we, we spent, you know, upwards of $400,000 on rent um, waiting in the pipeline to be approved. Like this is, this is insane. You, why are uh, drug war victims, black and brown people um, spending this much money to make it through a, reg, uh, a regulatory system to be approved to sell cannabis? Like three years is just unacceptable. So these are the types of things that need to change. I know you've asked for an elimination of the excise tax, which is like 15%. How about for cultivators? What do you hear from them? And do you think that would be helpful for you? Yeah, so, uh, you know, there's a cultivation tax uh, currently $161 and some change uh, per pound of cannabis. And um, <clears throat> as we've seen more and more larger uh, cannabis cultivation um, facilities and grows coming online, the, the cost of cannabis is just plummeting. And so now, you know, outdoor sun-grown cannabis going as low as $300 a pound. When you have that fixed uh cultivation tax of $161 a pound, that's more than half of the cost of the pound of cannabis. Like, How is this sustainable for the cultivator or even uh, a manufacturer and distributor like myself? So um, often, you know, uh, the cultivation tax is a, is a negotiation tool. Like it's, well, we got to pay this $161 in, in cultivation tax. I can't, you know, I can't, I can't pay that plus <clears throat> plus $500 for the pound of cannabis and be able to sell it at the retailer for X amount of dollars because the cost we're constantly trying to drive the cost down uh, of, of the eighth at the end of the day for the, for the retailer, for the consumer. So it, it, it just, it's, it ends up being this vicious, you know, kind of race to the bottom uh, mm -hmm. and pricing. And um, at the end of the day, the, the people that are really paying the, the cost is the, the small farmer and, and the small uh, manufacturer, the small distributor at the end of the, at, when it's all said and done. So um, we really need some relief uh, on the cultivation tax. Well, I understand we do have a small scale cannabis grow on the line with us, Blair Auclair of Radical Herbs. Blair Auclair, thanks so much for being with us. 
Hello, thanks for having me. Can you share a little bit about what it's been like for you as a small farmer? Yeah, I, I mean, really the, the same kind of story that <clears throat> Amber is talking about. Um, luckily, we were able to just continue cultivating uh, the way that we were able to get uh, semi-approved by the county and by the state. Uh, I think it's extremely uh, unfortunate and and horrible the way that they've been treating the way that dispensaries have to function. And I think that's a big part of our problem, but um, we're still at the, at the stage where we don't have a final permit from the County or a final permit from the state uh, with a deadline that, that was kind of was increased, but still closely approaching with still so many steps in between and financial and uh, governmental agency hurdles to go through in order to to complete our licenses. You mean with a deadline before even the semi-approval that you have expires? Uh, well, the, the state has a deadline that we need to have. So every cannabis license has to have uh, CEQA, um, environmental review, a site-specific mm -hmm. review even a dispensary in, in the city and then us, uh, us cultivators out here uh, where in the country and that uh, in order to continue with our provisional licenses, we have to have that environmental review completed, which that needs to be done by the, the county as the head of jurisdiction on that. And so we're just completely backlogged here on the county level on, on having that happen. There's only been a handful that have been been approved and we basically have a year and a half for that deadline uh, before it expires. And it's not a quick, easy process. Yeah, tell me how long you've been in the process now. I've been in the process with a provisional license since uh, 2018. And things are basically stalled out and have been stalled out for years, I would say. We're talking with Blair Auclair, Amber Center, and Amanda Chicago-Lewis about the state of California's cannabis industry five years since Prop 64 legalized marijuana. We'll have more after the break. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about Proposition 64. Five years after its passage, there are still a lot of concerns about how the market in California is still vastly fueled 
by illegal sources. It's the illegal market that seems to be thriving far more than the legal market. Amanda Chicago Lewis wrote a piece in The Guardian called California Legalized Weed Five Years Ago. Why is the illicit market still thriving? Chicago Lewis is a journalist covering cannabis. Amber Center is co-founder and executive director of Supernova Women. And Blair Auclair is with us, a small-scale cannabis grower, Radical Herbs in Mendocino County. You, our listeners, are sharing your thoughts on what you're hearing and you're telling us your own experiences if you're a farmer or dispensary operator or even a consumer. 866-733-6786 is the number. 866-733-6786. You can email your questions to forum at kqed.org or get in touch on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram at KQED Forum. The Bud Farm writes, we are licensed. We are a licensed farm in Nevada County, and it has been daunting just trying to keep afloat with all the expenses and fees and taxes. We need help or the big companies that can leverage financing will be the only ones that survive. And Paul writes, I have a friend who is a large cannabis grower here in California. He is a supplier to several Bay Area dispensaries. He has found it increasingly necessary to sell his products under the table because of the low prices that dispensaries pay. While much of his business is in the legal supply of his products to dispensaries, the only way he can actually turn a profit is to sell under the table. Is this something that you've heard as well, Blair Auclair, that people have to basically keep a foot in the illegal market to stay afloat? Uh, I would say that that's the case for many cultivators. I mean, one of the biggest issues I think that we're facing in the state, there's it's a, we have many issues that we're facing, but for the ability for consumers to buy access product is extremely challenging. And the prices and the taxes that are uh, piled on top, what we talked about before, um, is just really like un unattainable and and not fair. I mean, I see the package, the product that I package, and find out how much it's being sold to consumers in a dispensary, and it's just absolutely astounding. And it doesn't surprise me that people are trying to access products uh, through a different marketplace. What would help you most? What kinds of changes would help you most on the county or state level? Um, I definitely think that eliminating the, the the state cultivation tax would be a huge step forward. I mean, having a flat rate tax on something on an agricultural product, I believe, is pretty unheard of. And it just is uh, with the way that the prices are fluctuating and what Amber was describing, the the margins, it's it's impossible. You pay uh, like she said, you know, after half of that amount is taken to taxes, you have like basically $150 after that. And it costs 100 to $150 to get the product processed. And that doesn't include the expenses for producing the product. So you're, you're basically at zero. And so we're all just barely hanging on. And I, every day I hear a new story of, of a farmer who's, you know, shutting down their business and, and can't continue. And we're talking about, you know, legacy cultivation areas um, throughout uh, the state of mostly Northern California, where, you know, this is, this is families, this is uh, people who are part of their communities, small businesses who have been around for many of them uh, generations. And we're really witnessing um, an extinction event if something isn't done uh, very quickly. Well, Blair Auclair, I know you need to leave us, and I really appreciate you being on. Thank you so much. Thank you. Blair Auclair is a cannabis grower with Radical Herbs in Mendocino County.
And Amanda Chicago Lewis, there's a comment here from Sandra who writes, illegal growers often use public lands or national forests. They're not regulated. There's little enforcement and they use undocumented labor. Illegal growers use poisons, pesticide and fertilizers. They are not legal in the U.S. Legal growers cannot compete against these odds. As we're breaking down the reasons that a legal market is so beneficial for the state, have you seen uh, a reduction in the size or number of illegal grows since the passage of Prop 64, since that was one of the promises? Yeah, so that's, again, like really hard to measure at an illicit market. Um, I think in the sense that some people have become legal in the last five years, maybe that is a reduction um, because they used to be operating illicitly. Um, but a lot of people who are in the legal market um, are new entrants. So it's it's kind of difficult to say. Um, yeah, it's just difficult uh, yeah. to measure. But certainly the point about the environment, environmental degradation, um, but also just about the you know violence that the people who are uh, involved in those businesses end up exposed to. Um, and so it's just it's very hard to paint the illicit market with any kind of broad brush because you know there are uh, you know literal cartels, you know gangsters out there with guns operating really dirty, uh, you know, nasty businesses. But then there are also like well-intentioned human beings who would desperately like a license um, who are not able to become legal because of the restrictions, uh, you know, in their municipality. Let me go to caller Michael in Mendocino. Hi, Michael. Hey, how you doing, Nina? I'm well. What's on your mind, Michael? Uh, well, you know, I live in Mendocino County, so... Mendocino, Humboldt, and Trinity is known as the Emerald Triangle. Mm -hmm. It's been like the largest producer of cannabis for, I'd say, at least 50 years. And what I noticed, having worked with them, met them, as your last caller said, I know genuine families three, four decades into it who now are, haven't been, having, are being driven from their own homes and their own legal properties that they own that they can no longer sustain because the medical the the, uh, the legal marijuana is trying to take over but again the overhead of running a legal cannabis dispensary is so high starting from the permits to the licensings to the rent to whatnot you go back to mom and pop growers who've been doing it here for decades they own their property they own their homes they're doing it clean without these uh toxins and and substances they you know like they're just good old-fashioned mom and pops growers they're they're struggling they're they're pretty much on their way out and it's kind of the black market is still thriving, yeah. so those who are holding on are still doing it. But, um, yeah, you can get four times the amount of cannabis on the black market than you can at a dispensary. Michael, th thanks for sharing your experience and perspective on this. A couple of other listeners are writing, for example, this listener, legal cannabis is too expensive in California. You would think with large-scale production that prices would come down, especially considering all the taxes added on. And RW writes, if I still smoked pot, I'd avoid the fancy cannabis boutiques and their high prices and opt for a good old-fashioned, though perhaps illegal, pot dealer who would offer prices 
within my budget. I mean, Amber Center as a business owner, what's your reaction when you hear that? <clears throat> you know, consumers are driven by price. Like, uh, I mean, folks are, uh, the economy is, is suffering. People are out of work. People are, are really driven by price. And, you know, I, I, I can't say that I blame them. Well, David tweets, Amanda Chicago Lewis, can you explain what I understand to be a hugely onerous taxation structure on cannabis without regard to medical or recreational? Could you imagine such a taxation of any other medication or even alcoholic beverages? Yeah, right. So uh, the people have really led the charge politically on, on cannabis legalization, right? We've seen so many ballot initiatives that have pushed this forward um, from Prop 215 allowing medical in 1996 to um, Prop 64 legalizing adult use in 2016. Um, and then, you know, individual entrepreneurs, you know, choosing to essentially commit civil disobedience in growing cannabis when they, you know, weren't supposed to, in selling cannabis when they weren't supposed to. I mean, like, this is really a truly, I guess, like democratic um, or like consumer-driven uh, industry to a certain extent. And so for the politicians, there was a really long time where nobody wanted to touch cannabis. Nobody wanted to talk about cannabis. Nobody wanted to acknowledge what was happening um, in California in terms of the um, enormous illicit medical market. And so tax dollars, you know, talking about the cannabis industry contributing tax dollars to public coffers was the thing that essentially gets a lot of politicians and got a lot of politicians on board with legalization and the conversation around it. It's a very complex policy issue, um, legalization, because of the interplay between, you know, science and the economy and the illicit market and federal regulation and all these different things. And so a lot of politicians are like, why even bother getting involved or talking about this? And so what we say is, oh, we're going to bring in this tax revenue. We're going to give the money to schools. You know, we're going to give the money to um, fix potholes. And so when it becomes a conversation about uh, bringing tax dollars in, then it becomes very difficult to squash the illicit market and incentivize people to run legal businesses. Um, so it's, it's, it's kind of, yeah, it's a big problem. Amber Center, you're based out of Oakland, correct? Yes, that's correct. And my understanding is that Oakland has some form of a social equity program to try to in essence, repair for the kinds of issues that were suffered, especially by black and brown communities under, you know, the prohibition period, right, under um, an illegal market. Can you just give me a sense of, of if that's been helpful to you? <clears throat> um, I think the social equity program has been helpful to uh, a number of different folks that have been able to take advantage of the opportunity. Um, it, it's not necessarily like the easiest uh, easiest thing to navigate. Um, so uh, I run a shared manufacturing facility. I uh, incubate social equity manufacturers so that um, basically they can access uh, being a manufacturer without having the overhead of building out a facility and 
paying for their uh, for a, a type six manufacturing license. Like everything is somewhat subsidized and also shared. It's like a shared uh, co-op. <clears throat> so it's one of the few in the state. Um, it was uh, the first in the country uh, for social equity operators. Now, that being said, um, I've assisted a number of equity operators um, in the licensing process to be able to manufacture at my facility. And it was very difficult. It required uh, a lot of resources, a lot of, a lot of assistance in getting them through this process. And I just look at that and, and see, you know, how many of these social equity operators have not been able to take advantage of, of the benefits that have been offered to them because of the bureaucracy and, 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 uh, assistance that's needed. Now, the city of Oakland has certainly tried to make this <clears throat> as efficient as possible and, and worked really hard to lower the barriers um, so that the operators can access the grants and loans programs that are available. But there's still quite a bit of, of um, red tape and things that are needed, um, you know, th whether it's getting through risk and and through the insurance process that the city of Oakland has is mm. a number of different barriers that they still have to uh, get through and navigate in order to be able to access the program. Amanda Center, co-founder and executive director of Supernova. And you're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Amanda Chicago, I know that you've also done some reporting on this. Can you zoom out to Amber's experience more broadly? What are you seeing uh, in terms of businesses uh, in black and brown communities or run by black and brown people in California? Yeah, so, you know, in the last five or six years, seven years, the conversation around cannabis legalization has increasingly turned to this question of social equity and atoning for the racial disparities um, of the way the war on drugs has consistently been enforced, right? Um, and unfortunately, um, these promises, not only have they not been fulfilled um, in terms of, I guess, making whole, uh, you know, the black and brown communities that suffer from cannabis being illegal, from disproportionate arrests, lots of forfeiture and all these sorts of things. Um, in fact, I think social equity is now really just another example in a long line of uh, American programs where um, promises were made uh, and uh, in, instead of the promises being fulfilled, um, the people who participate in the program are experiencing more loss than gain. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, as Amber acknowledged, you know, like a few people have managed to take advantage of these programs, but those people, the number of those people is so dwarfed by the number of people who have lost money trying to have a social equity business. Um, you know, as Amber said earlier, you know, it took her and her partners three years to get approved as social equity um, licensees in the city of San Francisco. Meanwhile, they're paying rent on a property that they need to have in place in order to get that license. Right. So imagine you're paying rent for three years and you can't operate your business. And the whole point of the program is to help people who might be economically disadvantaged, who uh, grew up in disproportionately policed neighborhoods. Um, if you are economically disadvantaged, why are you laying out hundreds of thousands of dollars in order to just get the opportunity to compete in a market 
that is doing really poorly, especially compared to the illicit market. You know, folks who are well capitalized are not doing well in the legal cannabis market. And now folks who we are promising, you know, a lot of things were said in 2016, 17, 18, and are still being said in other markets around the country about what social equity can offer, specifically um, generational wealth is often mentioned. Um, this sort of, you know, once in a lifetime opportunity to get rich on legal weed. Um, again, back to this illusion that legal weed is super lucrative when it's not. Um, and so all these people think, oh my gosh, I'm going to, you know, sell my home, get my savings, get in bed with this shady investor in order to have the startup money to get this business going that's going to help, you know, get me set for life. And what's actually happening is, you know, you, for every nine people who, who do this, you know, whoever nine people who lay out that money and fail, one person is going to succeed, right? So like, mm. there's just uh, really enormous and tragic economic losses happening where there were promises of restitution and justice. Cameron writes, I'm a customer of two cannabis stores in San Francisco, Purple Star and Grassroots. I can tell they have gigantic sales and profits. These two spots always have lines out front, several people deep and eight to 10 people at registers behind the counter. Is there also a story of the haves and the have nots? We hear Amber Chicago Lewis that it's not too late to turn this around. Do you feel that way? And what would be your top three things? And we just have about 30 seconds left. What would you sorry, say, Amber? So, Am Am Amanda, uh, I'm sorry, would be your top no three problem. things. Yeah, to no, Amber around. and I could be one person. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, no, I mean, some businesses may appear to be doing a lot of business, and I think retail is generally doing better than other sectors of the cannabis industry, but um, I would just say appearances can be deceiving. Hmm. Well, thank you, Amanda Chicago-Lewis, for speaking with us today, a journalist covering cannabis. Amber Center, thank you as well, co-founder and executive director of Supernova. Also, my thanks to Ariana Prail for producing today's segment. Earlier, we heard from Blair Auclair, small-scale cannabis grower, Radical Herbs, and from Nicole Elliott, director of the state's cannabis department. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way, from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found you. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Hey, John Favreau here. There's no shortage of political takes in 2024, but quantity doesn't cut it. 
We need a better conversation about the latest biggest election of our lives. On Pod Save America, me and my co-host cut through the noise to help you figure out what matters and how you can help. Every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday, Pod Save America is breaking down the political news that makes us laugh, cry, and snap our laptops in half. Expensive year for laptops. Make sure to check out new episodes of Pod Save America on your favorite podcast platform or our YouTube channel now.